In Romans 8, 28, uh, the first is uh, to prepare me for tonight in case Liverpool lose. Uh, I need to claim this promise like never before. Uh, all things work together for good. And if Liverpool win, you can believe how believing this will be so much easier. And that's actually uh, rather instructive for us because Romans 8.28 doesn't appear in the context of things going well. The context actually involves suffering because that's when the promise will naturally mean a whole lot more to us. All things work together for good to those who love God. And this is a very special verse to me personally because it was the verse I was converted listening to a tape sermon on Romans 8.28 at university. I listened to a sermon on Romans 8.28 by a pastor in South Africa uh, who actually baptized me as a baby and I didn't know that until I listened to a tape about 19, 20 years later and told my dad about this, this message that I heard and this pastor. And uh, he says, yeah, he baptized you. And uh, so the, the man who baptized me was also the man whose sermon I heard I was converted. And it was this passage. And uh, Romans 8.28 meant a lot to me as I was converted because it occurred in a time of, of what was uh, suffering. And by suffering, I, I mean hitting a low uh, that many people who go off to university uh, can hit these lows. And for me, it was actually uh, right at the last time I expected to be hitting a low. I went off to university in the United States to one of the best soccer schools in the U.S. on a full soccer scholarship an athlete, a student, uh, my whole life ahead of me. I thought, you know, this is great. My dad told me all sorts of things on the way down. Yeah, yeah, dad, don't know, I already got it under control. And, um, and for various reasons, the Lord had uh, other plans for me, and that was to make me a Christian. Uh, and that wasn't through success. It was through weakness and trials and suffering. And so this verse will mean a lot to us at different times in our life. That's just how uh, the Word of God works. We don't wake up every morning quoting Romans 8.28, but there have been times, no doubt, where we've quoted it or had it quoted to us when we've needed it. But it is still to be in the back of our minds and in our souls at all times to help us approach life. So uh, let me read to you uh, the verse. And then we'll get down to business. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. So this is a great promise when you think about the fact that if you don't limit the all things, and there's no reason that we should limit the all things, if you don't limit the all things and include everything in your life, and I mean everything, stubbing a toe, a cut, uh, a rainy day, whatever it may be, if you include all things in your life and you believe that they are working together for your good, that is a great promise. Imagine that. 
All things work together for your good. Who wouldn't want to believe that promise? Who wouldn't want that to be true of them? There is a catch, of course. It's not a blanket promise to every single human being who has ever lived. It is a promise to those who love God, which really is the foundation of the Christian religion, love. Before there was a world, before there was a universe, before you were brought into this world, before any creature was created, before any animal, before any sun, moon, stars, God loved God. The Father loved the Son. The Son loved the Father. The Father loved the Spirit. The Spirit loved the Father. The Spirit loved the Son. And the Son loved the Spirit. And it was a communion of love. And we are never more like God than when we love. We can do a whole host of things, but we are most like God when we love because God is love and God has always loved. So when we love God and when we love Jesus Christ, we are most like God. So to those who love God, to those who love God, to those who from their heart, soul, mind and strength love the Lord their God, who live for God, who commune with God, who recognize that God is the sum and substance of their life, that God made them, that God will ultimately redeem them with new bodies, that they will be with God forever, that God In him we live and move and have our being. This is the God that we are to love. And if you do not love this God, then this promise has absolutely zero relevance for you. In fact, the opposite is true. Far from all things working together for your good, nothing is working together for your good. Despite the outward circumstances. So you will either believe, as many people tend to in this world, you will either rule your life in one of two ways. How am I to interpret all of my outward circumstances, whether my life is good or not? Or will I believe God's promise in order to interpret my life circumstances? In which case, if you believe Romans 8.28 and you love God, then you can interpret every single circumstance in your life as the effectual loving control of your heavenly Father over every sphere of your life. And we know it's something that all Christians are to know. Those described in verse 1 of chapter 8, those described earlier on in chapter 5 and other chapters, and we know, Paul assumes that this is something that we should know. Now, why would he assume that? Well, I'm going to get to that a little bit later on. But anybody familiar with the God of the Old Testament and with the Scriptures should actually know this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. So there is nothing in God. There is nothing in God And there is nothing from God for which the saints of God do not love God. We love everything in God 
And so because we love everything in God and who he is, we love everything from God. Because there is nothing in God that we do not love. There's nothing in God that is a shadow, that is a hint of wickedness, of evil. And so when we entrust ourselves to say, I love this God, and that's such a necessary component of this promise, you're saying, I love God, and therefore everything that works out in my life, I can know is for my good because I love the God who is working these things out. But if you don't love the God who is working everything together in your life for a purpose, then you can see why some people would question their events that take place. What are they ultimately doing as Christians? They are saying, I don't love everything in God. I don't trust that he has infinite knowledge of all things. I don't trust that he is a wise and good God. I don't trust that he's declared the end from the beginning. I don't trust that he has everything under control. I don't love that God. That's what you're saying when you doubt that all things are working together for your good. So as a Christian, you must, you must not only love God, but love the God who works in your life. There's a difference between the two because many people are comfortable saying they love God, but they're not so comfortable loving the God who actually is and works in their life. And this type of love is a consuming love. It's, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? Um, I got in Wednesday night and uh, I sat through a rather boring Europa League final. <laughs> a couple of teams, I forget their names. Um, red and blue or something, I don't know. I weren't up to much, to be honest. And uh, was it in Azerbaijan? Yeah. I mean, who's been there? <laughs> Anyone been there? But fans, thousands of fans traveled to a place that we, most of us, don't even know where it is. And they travel there, and, and you see the way in which football fans will travel on trains and planes and buses and hitch rides and put their lives at risk and and they will spend their life savings to get a ticket and and they will sit in cold and snow and 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 then they will sing and they will they will trek back and 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 you've got to admire the love that they have for their team don't you it's incredible you really see what human beings are capable of when they want to love something. It's all consuming. It's all embracing. And they love something that can't actually guarantee them anything, unless you're a Man City supporter. And even then, even then, I notice they're not playing tonight. So people will give everything to something that can't actually guarantee them everything will work together for good. So for Christians, how much more is the question, should our love be for a God who actually can guarantee us 
that everything will actually work together for our good when nothing else and no one else can make that guarantee. And yet other things seem to get an inordinate amount of love from human beings. Is our love often misplaced? So the promise all things, especially sufferings, especially afflictions, because in the context, that is what Paul has said from verse 18 onwards. And so there's no reason we should limit this. If there was a way to limit it, you would say, well, surely God isn't talking about sufferings. But notice that's the context in which he says all things. Now, if you just think the classic case of this working out in the life of somebody where Paul says, and we know, what do you think may have gone through Paul's mind in terms of an Old Testament example of, and we know that all things work together for good? Well, the obvious example is Joseph. And it's worth going over the all things in Joseph's life. And you can imagine for Joseph growing up as a young man and and he gets this nice uh, purple robe, a uh, sign of royalty from his father and his brothers don't. And you can imagine thinking, oh, all things work together for good. And then God speaking to him and giving him a vision that his family are going to bow down before him. And Joseph thinking, things really are working together for my good. I love Romans 8.28. That's what Joseph would say. I believe it with all my heart. But there's a problem. And Joseph lives in the world. He doesn't live in heaven. So, as you know, Joseph's brothers uh, don't like him so much. They get a little bit upset. Whether Joseph was rubbing it in their face or not, commentators are divided. Maybe he was just telling them facts, or maybe he was saying, well, you do know that uh, I'm going to be your ruler one day. Uh, Not that it's important. All things work together for good for everybody here. Even you guys, you'll be bowing down to me, but hey, human beings don't work that way. So if Joseph isn't in the fields, but he's safely at home, instead of seeking his brothers, what might have happened? But he's the opposite of Cain. Remember Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? Joseph is his brother's keeper and goes off on a treacherous journey on his own and almost ends up like Abel. And then a stranger overhears the brothers. Not really a big deal in and of itself, but it's in the text. And Joseph continues on his journey for another 13 miles, which is quite a distance, northwest to Dothan. Why did he go in that direction? Well, maybe a stranger overheard the conversation of these brothers, and Joseph was able to get directions simply because someone overheard the brothers speaking, because the brothers decided to speak at a certain point when there was a stranger there who would be able to possibly help Joseph find where his brothers would be. Now, if they kill Joseph, the dreams can't be fulfilled. So what do they do? They strip him of his royalty, which is ultimately what caused the jealousy and envy in the first place. Now, cisterns 
what normally holds water, but this one happened to be dry. So Joseph is thrown into a cistern when ordinarily he probably would have died by drowning because he wouldn't have been able to stay afloat for hours and hours. But this one was dry. And he pleads with his brothers not to do this, but they don't actually listen. Imagine they says, oh, yeah, okay, we've scared him, we've taken his robe, maybe he'll learn his lesson, but they don't actually listen. And you wonder, Joseph, thinking about Romans 8.28, when he first receives the robe from his father, and now thinking about Romans 8.28 when he's in the cistern, where do you think Romans 8.28 would be more precious to him? So he's in the cistern, and the callousness of the brothers. They eat, and they see a band of Ishmaelites, and they sell him into slavery. Surely things cannot be working together for Joseph's good. So the next time we hear of Joseph's brothers eating after this account is at Joseph's table. It's remarkable. So the robe is dipped in the blood of a goat, and they have to find a goat who just happens to be there. They have to kill this goat, dip it in blood, and then the goat's blood hides what? The sin of Joseph's brothers because Jacob is tricked. And Jacob is tricked by a garment. Isn't that interesting that Jacob is tricked by a garment? The tricker is tricked the one who wore his brother's garment, so to speak, to trick his father is now tricked by his sons. And many other events take place. Joseph is in the pit. What did he think? He's sold into slavery. What did he think? He is in Potiphar's house and he is accused of chasing uh, this woman who levels false accusations against him and he's put in jail. What did he think? When, when were things working together for his good? At what point? And you see, the answer to that question is they were always working together for his good. So what was Joseph's perspective? Well, we don't always know. He was a young man of faith and as he rises to power and able to feed his family and able to finally reveal himself and all of these things, you have to come to the conclusion that Romans 8.28 is indeed true of someone where at many instances in his life he may have doubted whether that was the case and legitimately so. Because for all of the troubles that we have gone through and some of them significant, how many of us have been thrown into a cistern, sold into slavery, falsely put in jail, almost left for dead and killed? All things work together for good to those who love God. What about Jacob's perspective? He loved God as duplicitous and silly as he was from time to time. And when his brothers, his sons come back, he identifies the robe. And what does he say? It is my son's robe. And look at the conclusions he draws. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. 
All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. And thus his father wept for him. See how Jacob looks at life's circumstances and interprets life's circumstances apart from believing in the God he has always said he believed in. And so what happens when we forget God? What happens when we forget God's promises? This is what tends to happen. We look at a scenario and we interpret it in the worst possible light. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. He's absolutely convinced Joseph is dead. And he seemed to have evidence. So when was everything working together for Jacob's good? And what was God doing? When Jacob thought God perhaps had dealt him a severe blow, what had God actually done for Jacob? God had preserved Jacob and his family in the most remarkable way. Think of someone else. There's so many examples. Uh, Mary, the mother of our Lord Jesus Christ. She sings a song. She gives birth to the Messiah, the virgin birth. She raises the Messiah. She knows he's godly. She knows he's powerful. She's witnessed his miracles. She's seen his teaching. She's heard his prayers. It's her son, and a mother's love for her son is, is of course, a love that is intense and it is unconditional. And you think about how all of a sudden Jesus comes to Jerusalem. And if you were to ask Mary on the morning of the crucifixion, what is the worst possible thing that could happen to you this day? What would Mary say, do you think? Is it conceivable that Mary could have said, well, the worst thing that could happen to me today would be that my son Jesus is killed. In fact, even worse than that is that he would be publicly crucified, which is the worst form of death that can possibly happen in the public sphere. And that the church, the Jewish religious leaders will accuse him of blasphemy and he will be convicted at a trial on religious grounds and that the Romans will kill him on civil grounds and that he will be publicly crucified and naked and mocked and cursed and ridiculed and so weak and beaten that he won't be able to carry his cross and we'll all be there to see it. Imagine being told that in the morning. That's going to happen to your son. And she would say, all things are working together for bad right now. You could forgive her for saying that. He is without doubt torn to pieces. Which is, in a manner of speaking, true. And yet, could anything better have been taking place for Mary at that point concerning her salvation? What she may have thought was the worst thing happening was actually the best thing happening. Not only for her, but also for her son. Because he was being faithful even unto death. For the joy set before him endured the cross. 
And as bad as the shrieks from Jesus were, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was those shrieks that ultimately pleased the Father because Jesus said, I always do that which is pleasing to the Father. And so the Father sees the obedience of his Son. And again, you, 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 you must know, and you will, hopefully many of you know what it's like. I... Even on a very mundane level, I, I remember this, this game recently and my, my son was playing and uh, he's just moved to the big field with the big nets. Uh, they play, you know, the, the fields get bigger as they get older. And finally, he's on a full-size field and there was a free kick about 40 yards away, just sort of where the center circle comes in a little to the left and, you know, the goalie standing there. And these are, these are little kids. You know, they can barely kick this new size five ball that they have to kick this year. It was size four before that. And I thought, no way, you know, if it's ages away, you know, just put it nicely into the box, drop it. The kids at this age still a bunch of pansies. So instead of heading the ball, they turn their back at the last second. And this is a high-level team as well. It's called high performance. And he shot it, and it just went sailing, ripping into the top corner of the net. And he turns around, and he's running in his teammates. And, and I was thinking, that's my boy. And I, <laughs> I'm, I'm the coach as well, so I have to kind of keep it calm in a sense, right? You know, you, know, you, you can cheer, but because it's your son, you always have to be careful. And we're playing the best team. And then he takes a corner kick. And he actually whipped one in from the corner into the top corner from the corner kick. And I said, that's my boy. <laughs> and you see your son out there performing like that. And you're, you're beaming with pride. And I can imagine the father, even though everyone else in the world sees what's so horrible. And even those mocking him see that this is a public disgrace. And everyone's looking at it with different lenses. But the God of heaven and earth is looking down on earth at his son being crucified. And he's saying, that's my boy. Because he knows that all things work together for good to those who love God. And nobody has ever loved God like the Son of God. And therefore, nobody has ever had everything working together for their good quite like the Son of God. And our perspective then should be shaped by this. How many of you have past vain regrets? Vain regrets. I, I still, I still, I know I wasn't good enough. I still have these dreams when I was playing at Arsenal when I was 16 and 17 and, and going to the chief scout, Steve Rowley, at the end and, and saying, yeah, I just want to go home to my family in Canada before he had a chance to tell me what they were going to do. And it was being a chicken because I just knew they weren't going to give me a contract. I kind of would like to have heard him say, sorry, you're rubbish, mate. <laughs> Well, probably wouldn't have actually, but um, and then you go and you you do things, and life goes on, and and people get into relationships, and you get married, and you have children, and you're going to do a thousand things within that context where you make mistakes. And you wish you'd gone here or you wish you'd tried that. And if you don't believe Romans 8.28, 28, 
You can cripple yourself with vain regrets. You can always be saying, why did I do this? Why didn't I do that? Why, why, why? But if you believe that all things work together for good, while not excusing sin, you can trust in God's providence for your life that actually this is the best thing for you. And as one theologian said, God grows some of his most exotic and beautiful flowers on the dunghill of our sin. So there's this book. Um, you may or may not have heard of this pastor. He's in uh, Houston in Texas, Joel Osteen. Um, yeah, some of you clearly. Um, he has a great dentist, you know. <laughs> Look at him smile. His teeth are almost as white as Bobby Firmino's. <laughs> um, you'll see later. Uh, and, you know, he's just got this ministry. And I don't know how old him and his wife are. She's had so much plastic surgery, you can tell when she smiles. It's just like, what is happening to your face? <laughs> but he has written this book, and it's quite a well-known book. It's called Your Best Life Now. And for those of us who read the Bible and understand theology, and especially if you're Reformed, you know, or you get upset about everything, <laughs> You, you criticize this book and you say this book is nonsense and, and all of the rest, but it is actually a great title. It actually could convey real truth if what was inside it wasn't rubbish because you have your best life now. If everything is working together for your good because you love God, what does that mean for you as a Christian you have your best life now, despite the failings, despite the sins, despite the mistakes, because ultimately you can say, because I love God, God is working all things together for my good. Your best life now. You can say by faith, I have the best life. Yes, when things go wrong, I have the best life because I know that ultimately my Father who is in heaven is in control of my life and I am not. And this also gives you a future confidence about what's going to happen in the future because if you love God now, the promise remains with you that all things will work together for your good. So you may have real doubts, you may have real fears, you may have real disturbances in your mind of things that are yet to come and yet, if you believe that all things work together for good, well, that's going to alleviate a great deal of anxiety that you don't need to have. It may re reduce a whole host of thoughts that really are a waste of your time and effort because they're never actually going to happen. My, I know what it's like to, to be with people who worry. My, my poor mother worries about everything. I'll phone her. Hi, mother. How was your sleep? Oh, I didn't sleep last night. My mother hasn't slept for 20 years, I think. <laughs> it's kind of sad. And 19.9 .9 of those years are worrying about things that didn't actually happen. And we're probably not much better. We worry, we have anxiety, 
And while there are medical reasons for many people who have anxiety and, and things that have happened traumatic and, and all sorts, and I don't discount that, there is probably a great deal of anxiety that is just simply a refusal to believe that God is working all things together for our good. We could forgive Joseph for having some anxiety. We can forgive Jesus for having some anxiety. But I don't think it stopped them at the same time from also believing God. So when you come to this promise, all things work together for good to those who love God. Start from the end. Who is God? What is God like? What is God able to do? And then you go back to the beginning, and with that God in mind, when you see the all things, the all-powerful God, the all-wise God, the eternal God, all those things are everything. From the moment that you breathe to your final breath, every step you take, everything you look at, everything you touch, everything you see is working together for your good, if you love that God. Well, let's pray. O oh Lord, our God, we thank you for your word. We ask that we would believe you and what you have said in your word, that everything works together for good to those who love God. And indeed, perhaps some of us are struggling with this right now. Perhaps in the next few days and weeks and months, we're going to have to face this reality. And we ask that you would remind us of this promise and seal it to our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus by the power of the Spirit. Amen.